You're listening to The Creation Academy, a weekly podcast defending the truth of God's Word in biblical creation science. I'm your host, Steve Schramm, and in this week's lesson, we are placing Adam in humanity's history. Placing Adam in humanity's history. For those of you who are just joining us for the first time, we are in a series called The Biblical Origin of Humanity. The Biblical Origin of Humanity. And we are discussing a book by Dr. Terry Mortensen from Answers in Genesis. And the name of this book is Searching for Adam, the Genesis and the Truth About Man's Origin. Searching for Adam, Genesis and the Truth About Man's Origin. And you will have a link to that in the show notes. Um, I am going to tell you again, as I have in the past few episodes, by the way, this is the fifth episode in this series, the fifth lesson. And, um, I would encourage you to go buy it. I think you can get the Kindle version for five ninety nine right now, and I'm just going to warn you ahead of time, and I'll probably mention throughout in some different areas as well. Um, but there is a lot of material in this book that I am unable to cover because of time constraints, um, and of course copyright and things like that as well. There are other constraints as well, but uh, I just I can't cover all of the material that's in the book. But it, it's so good. Um, and I'm actually giving you a lot of information in, in these podcasts. I mean, you should see my actual uh, show notes. Um, they're pretty intimidating. Um, and it does take a little while to prepare for this each week. Um, but my point is that even with all of that preparation, there's a, a lot that's being missed uh, simply because we don't have time to cover it all. So I've tried to hit the high points here and uh, tried to give you an overall picture of humanity's history. You know, here's the reality. Um, with each and every, you know, science alert, uh, it seems like every week we are seeing, you know, headlines like, well, we have to reinvent humanity's origin. We've found some new piece of information that gives us new dating and um, everything's changed. And so the problem for the Christian who happens to accept evolutionary dates and time frames, even if they are not an evolutionist, has to deal with these findings as they relate to um, man, as they relate to the antiquity of um, Homo sapiens. And we'll actually see a little bit of that later on um, as we go through this particular chapter. Um and so this is actually chapter, uh, I want to say it's chapter four. No, I'm sorry. I think, I believe it's chapter five, rather, in the book. Um, Placing Adam in Humanity's History is what I've titled it. Um, and uh, When Was Adam Created, I think, is the title of the chapter in the book. Um, but we're going to deal with that a little bit uh, today. So today's discussion um, is kind of the crux of this podcast. Um, in a way, this particular chapter deals mostly with the age of the earth issue. Um there are many cases made from many different angles um, in different pieces of literature um, regarding the age of the earth as a whole. This is not necessarily my favorite case that's been made, um, but it is pretty succinct, and there are definitely many clear lines of evidence here which, which demonstrate um, that the earth is not as old as once thought, or not as old as many still think rather today. So, um, without much further ado, we're going to go ahead and dive in. Now, this chapter was actually written by Dr. Terry Mortensen himself. Um, for those of you who are just joining us again, this book has actually been written by many, many different authors, and Dr. Terry Mortensen is the general editor, and he is a um, speaker with Answers in Genesis, and he has spoken on the creation evolution issue actually in churches, schools, universities, and seminaries in 25 different countries, um, participated in seven formal debates with evolutionary PhD scientists. Um, he received a BA in mathematics from the University of Minnesota, a Master of Divinity from Trinical Evangelical Divinity School in Chicago, and this one's interesting, a PhD in the history of geology, uh, excuse me, in the history of geology from Coventry University in England. Now that's interesting. Um, I've never heard of too many people with a PhD in the history of geology, and, uh, and I like that. I think that's very, very needed because many people misunderstand and also many people misrepresent the history of, um, of geology, of the geologic ages, um, where all of this um, idea originated. It did not originate with radiometric dating 
um, something that we'll get into here. Um, that came much later, all right? Uh, the, the geologic ages and the fact that long ages were required actually came much before radiometric dating. And so um, this um, doesn't necessarily deal with, with that end of it in, in, in detail, but I just find it interesting that Dr. Mortensen has a PhD in the history of geology. Um, I really think that that makes him uh, or qualifies him to speak to the subject matter quite um faithfully, especially having a master of divinity as well. So he knows his Bible, uh, he knows his science, and he knows his history. And so that's very, very important. And he joined Answers in Genesis in 2001 um, after 26 years spent as a missionary with Campus Crusade for Christ, mostly in Eastern Europe. So here's the question that this chapter uh, in the book poses. When did Adam come into existence. Evolutionists say Homo sapiens came into existence 200,000 to 400,000 years ago, depending on which evolutionist you consult, because they do not all agree on what a Homo sapiens is. Can we harmonize that with the teaching of God's Word? Today, many Christians, including many leaders and scholars, think they can. So this is where it all begins. Uh, this is the question at hand. Can we can we harmonize the ideas of evolutionary ages uh, with the Bible? And again, as Dr. Mortensen has made clear here, uh, even the evolutionary community is not clear exactly and not in agreement with each other on um, what Homo sapiens is and what um, what of the fossil record should actually fall under that category. Um, and so that's a question posed here. Um, he says, many, quote, influenced by William Henry Green, uh, the famous Old Testament philo uh, professor at Princeton Theological Seminary, wrote an article in, in 1890 in which he argued that the genealogies in Genesis 5 and 11 were not intended to be used and could not properly be used for the construction of a chronology. He contended that the Bible is silent about the age of man and also the age of the earth and universe, so scientists are free to determine these ages according to the scientific evidence, and Christians need not reject or fear any day so determined. So, um, this is where it all kind of begins. Up to this point, there were certainly um, other interpretations of the age of the earth within Christian circles. So to say this originated with Green and his writing in 1890 would not be accurate. Um, there is definitely, and, th and that's the point that, that the author makes. Um, it, it's certainly the case that uh, we discussed, I think, Philo, even even last week. Um, w there are definitely those in church um, antiquity who um, just did not necessarily believe that the earth was... 6,000 years old. They believed that there were longer ages to be accounted for there. And so this William Henry Green character was not the first one to come on the scene. However, as far as modern evangelical scholars go, this uh, article that uh, Dr. Green wrote for Princeton was most definitely influential and remains influential today uh, probably is one of the main liberating documents to, to give the church the freedom and the permission to interpret the Bible in terms of current scientific knowledge. So Genesis is uh, certainly history, uh, but the author concludes that it's not only history, of course. It, it teaches theology, morality, redemption, and all of those truths are vitally important. You know, as a matter of fact, uh, most of the Bible doctrines that we all hold dear today um, were instituted in the book of Genesis, a book that's important from chapter 1 all the way through the end. Um, Genesis 1 through 11 uh, is just as significant as 12 through the end, okay? Um, but here's the thing. The theology depends on the history, now don't miss that statement. The theology depends on the history. And my evidence for that, my rationale for that, um, has been seen over the past four uh, lessons. 
um, specifically the past three, when we actually began to dive into this, um, because we can see that most of the biblical writers, well, not most, all of the biblical writers, where anyone commented on these matters, accepted Genesis as literal history as written. And specifically, even Jesus accepted a recent creation. There's no way to, to, to glean another interpretation, another reasonable interpretation, when Jesus said that they were made male and female from the beginning. Uh, you know, it, it becomes less and less reasonable, of course, the further you extend that time of man's creation from, quote, when the beginning was. It becomes less and less reasonable. Um, I've heard Dr. Frank Turek, uh, an apologist who I love and respect, but he, he holds to this old earth position, even though he says he's neutral, but he's really not. Um, he said that, well, it's God. God's outside of time. Okay, well, that's true, but Jesus was inside of time when he made that statement. Jesus was inside of time. So Jesus had something to say about time. As I mentioned the other week, or uh, I think it was a couple weeks ago, um, I dealt with a theistic evolutionist who, um, or I read a theistic evolutionist who readily admitted that Jesus had said that and that that's what Jesus meant, but that Jesus was simply wrong. So if we're willing to go there, um, we can make the Bible say whatever we want it to say. So we need to be careful. It, it, it's a slippery slope. I mean, I realize that um, I deal with many... Uh, old earth creationists on a regular basis, and I'm very good friends with a few of them, um, who who are you know who who hold a high view of scripture, and they claim to have a high view of scripture, and I don't doubt that they do. Um, but I think that in reconciling these issues, there are some serious problems, and we're going to talk about a few of those today. So I don't want to get too ahead of myself. So there are a few historical lines of evidence to deal with Genesis one through eleven, and again. Um, Whenever we reference Genesis here, I mean, almost no uh, scholar of the Old Testament um, has any issue, um, you know, academically or popularly with um, the concluding chapters of Genesis starting with chapter 12. Almost no issue whatsoever. So whenever we talk about Genesis here, we're almost always talking about Genesis 1 through 11, and most times I'll state that. I just wanted you to know that that's why it's said that way. This covers the creation account through the end of the flood and the Tower of Babel incident. And these are the incidents that are at stake. These are what most uh, scholars do not accept as literal history. And so it is um, our endeavor today to give some good and compelling reasons, hopefully, um, why I believe that view of Genesis is inaccurate. So let's begin looking at a few historical lines of evidence just to um, kind of bolster our claim that the theology here depends on the history uh, in Genesis. So uh, first of all, the Hebrew um, Vav consecutive, which is spelled W-A-W, by the way, the Hebrew Vav consecutive verb forms used in Genesis 1 and continuing throughout the rest of the book are characteristic of Hebrew narrative, but not of Hebrew poetry. All right, so this is um, when the Bible says, and God said, and God said, and God said, let there be light, and God said it was very good. When, when we see those verb forms, we find that they are very characteristic of Hebrew narrative, but not of Hebrew poetry. And so while there may be poetic language scattered throughout Genesis 1, which uh, I believe most um, Hebraists would readily admit the majority of it is it's, it's in the framework of narrative. I mean, we speak all the time um, in historical terms and still use uh, poetic language even in our English language. So that's it's not an anomaly. It's, it's not um, it's not an odd thing that that would happen. So it's still within the context of history. All right. Now Genesis one does not have the dominant characteristic of Hebrew poetry, however, namely parallelism, where the truth in the first part of a verse is repeated in different ways in the second part. So if we're if we're going to be looking for Hebrew poetry, then that's the dominant characteristic, and we would certainly expect to see it in there, um, but it's not. It's not there. Genesis 1 through 11 has the same characteristics of historical narrative as Genesis 12 through 50. Most of Exodus, much of Numbers, Joshua, 1st and 2nd Kings, etc. Genesis 1 through 11 describes real people by name, real events in their lives, real places and geographical areas by name, real times, days, months, years, etc. All right, so you see there, there's virtually no difference. I mean, when, when you continue on from Genesis 11 
into Genesis 12 and on through the rest of the Old Testament, you see similar writings. It it appears at first value that it's not to be taken in any different sense other than historical um, narrative. And so uh, we would need pretty good evidence to the contrary, uh, biblical evidence to the contrary, to be able to take it in any way, to be able to somehow and for some reason apply a different standard of hermeneutics to Genesis 1 through 11, but we don't get to do that, all right? So uh, based on the actual verb forms and the characteristics uh, in the languages, there's no reason to accept that it should be any different than historical narrative. The 11 Toledoths, which uh, basically say these are the generations of, that's called a Toledoth, sprinkled through Genesis, tie the whole book together as a unit. And no truly evangelical Bible scholar doubts that Genesis 12 through 50 is history, as we have suggested. So here is yet another characteristic that ties the two um, portions of Genesis, um, as some would argue that there are, uh, together. And fifthly, in every case that Jesus, the New Testament authors, and Old Testament authors refer to the events in Genesis 1-11, through 11, as we've already discussed, they always treated the text as straightforward, literal history, and they all knew the difference between truth and myth. And the author goes on, I didn't write all these down, but the author goes on to give some scripture references, which demonstrate the fact that obviously um, the apostles and Jesus, uh, all the other writers, they knew the difference between myth and truth. They were able to distinguish the two. And so I don't believe for one second that Jesus, Paul, or anybody else thought that they were conveying a myth. I believe that they thought and knew that they were conveying literal history and meant to be taken quite clearly. Um my personal conviction is that I pretty well refuse to trust a modern-day scholar because I've seen how wrong they can demonstrably be on things rather than Jesus. Uh, you can call that a faith position if you want to. I'm okay with that. I have no problem admitting that I have faith in Jesus Christ. In Hebrews, it says that without faith, it's impossible to please Him. And I do believe that we have a faith that is corroborated by evidence. I'm not advocating for applying faith here. I'm just saying that if you tell me that what you say contradicts what Jesus says, I'm going with Jesus every time. If I'm wrong one day on that, I don't have to answer to you. I have to answer to him. And he's my advocate. So I'm going to go with Jesus. I'm going to go with God. And you can go wherever you want to in whatever direction, but I am just trying to advocate that we start to go with Jesus here. Um, and that's the direction I am going to take. So let's begin to look at uh, the crux of the matter here. Let's begin to look at some dating ideas. We've kind of seen some characteristics of the text. Yes, we should take it seriously. Yes, I believe we should take it as historical narrative based on the grammatical historical hermeneutic that we apply to all of Scripture in the places where that hermeneutic is to be applied. And we're going to start there. And see if we can get some difference, uh, some rather some uh, concrete understanding of the timing uh, between the beginning of creation and now. So let's start with the beginning of creation to Adam. How long would that time period have been? Well, evolutionists say, quote, about 13 billion years ago, the first true man appeared about 13 point, um, 7998 billion years after. So in other words, about 13.8 billion years ago, that was the beginning of creation. And then the first true man appeared uh, quite a while afterwards. Of course, now that number changes on a pretty regular basis as we discussed um, at the outset here. So from one week to the next, quite literally, um, maybe not the official position of, quote, science as a whole, but certainly currently um, many different evolutionists are uh, hold different views of what constitutes a, a person, um, what fossils should be included um, in our lineage, and what time frame they came about and began to evolve. So, I mean, we, we're not the only ones with a dissenting opinion here. Uh, many evolutionists have that dissenting opinion among themselves. So, um, in contrast, young earth creationists say, and, and I'm going to be a little liberal here, but this is what he says, anywhere from 6,000 
to 12,000 years, but most, including the largest research organizations, hold to a creation around 6,000 years old with no gaps in the Genesis 5 and 11 genealogies. So, um, by the way, we're going to discuss that in depth, in depth here in a moment. Um, We're going to look at those genealogies and see if we should be taking anything uh, out of them or or if we can take anything from them in terms of getting a chronology, all right? Um, so let's look at a few things. And some of this is going to be standard fare. You've heard me mention a few of these things on the podcast because, again, we do talk about recent creation uh, quite a bit. And so the, some of this stuff is not going to be new, uh, but this particular case for it might be. So I encourage you to stick around and we will uh, really begin to dive into these issues. So the meaning of day, we're still talking about, remember, the beginning of creation to Adam. How long was that time period? So let's look at the meaning of the word day, which of course is the Hebrew word yom uh, in Genesis 5.1. Of course, there have been many books um, written on this. Uh, Ken Ham's wrote a book on it. Uh, Hugh Ross has wrote a book on it. Um uh, John, um, Dr. John Lennox has written a book on it. There's another guy who I'm thinking of, uh, and I can't remember um, his name exactly, but a pretty recent book that was written on it. <laughs> I mean, there are books and books and books about the days in Genesis 1. So I do not think that we are going to arrive at a conclusion today that suddenly solves this debate for everybody. Um, it's just not going to happen. It's going to be a debate that continues on. Um, but truth is still worth fighting for. And if somebody else thinks they have the truth, fine. Um, it's interesting that young earth creationists tend to argue in a bit more dogmatic sense. And um, old earth creationists tend to argue in a bit more of a loose sense. Um, and, and I don't necessarily mean that derogatory towards either party, Um it, it kind of works itself out naturally in the way they state their conclusions. And here's what I mean by that. So young earth creationists would typically uh, say something like this. The Bible clearly teaches that the earth and the universe was created just around 6,000 years ago. All right, most, most young earth creationists would have no problem making that statement. However, most old earth creationists at least in my perception, tend to hold their views with much less resolve. So their argument sounds like something like this. It could mean from the text that the earth is young, but since scientists have done a great job at determining the age of the universe and the age of the earth, and there's wide consensus among them, it appears that we can draw from the text the meaning that the age of the earth is much longer than once thought. And I'm trying to be careful with my words here. I don't want to misrepresent their position. But I've never heard an old earth creationist or theistic evolutionist or any, any of, of that crowd, I've never heard them say the words, Genesis and the Bible teaches an old creation. Now, it may lend in some credence to the argument itself that there is a way, there is at least a way, using the text to be so dogmatic about the young earth stance, but you have to be more loose in the interpretation for the old earth stance. Now, that might not be a good argument at all, Um it's not necessarily an argument that I'm making. It's just simply an observation that I've noted. Um, it, it's quite true that you can make a pretty compelling case for a young earth creation in uh, a standard reading, a straightforward reading of Genesis. But to, 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 to bring in an old earth interpretation, number one, I don't think you can do it at all for, for many reasons. But even if you could, I think you have to appeal to where the text is vague if it is, where the text could be vague rather than where the text is clear. Just some thoughts. So the dominant meaning, and this applies, but the dominant meaning of the word day in the Old Testament of the word yom is a literal day. That's the dominant meaning. 
So the author argues this. Yav is defined in its two literal or normal senses in verse 5, the light portion of the dark light cycle and the whole dark light cycle. It is repeatedly modified by a number, one day, second day, etc., which elsewhere in the Old Testament always means a literal, normal, 24-hour day. Each of the six days ends with the refrain, evening was and morning was. And everywhere in the Old Testament where Arab, or evening, Bukur, morning, and Layala, night, are used, they always mean a literal part of a literal day. Yom is defined again literally in verse 14 in relation to the movement of the heavenly bodies and the sun, moon, and stars do enable us to measure literal days, literal years, and literal seasons. So this is a pretty compelling case already that the words in Genesis 1, the word day, is to be taken in its literal, normal sense. Now the numbering of the days and the repeated refrain along with the repetition of and it was so six times, God saw seven times, and it was good six times, coupled with Exodus 28 through 11, which we'll discuss in a moment, emphatically indicate that these creation days were sequential and non-overlapping. The creative acts of one day were complete before the next day began. So this is an interesting conundrum for the progressive creation um, believers, uh, because they would argue that the days are not exact time periods. They are time periods, but that they overlap. But we can see that there seems to be a very natural conclusion repeatedly in the text for the days um, where each day ended and where the next day began. So I don't think we can make the progressive view work um, based on evidence strictly from the text alone. Furthermore, uh, the author comments that if God meant to indicate long ages, he could have used the Hebrew word door, which is time, period, or generation. Uh, the phrase, after many days, thousands of ten thousands of years, myriad thousands of years, or years of many generations. Um, by the way, all of those are specific literal renderings of phrases found elsewhere in the New uh, Testament where that uh, could have been years. Now, obviously, it's not it's not referring to those actual words. The words thousands of ten thousands of years are not found anywhere in the Bible. But it's that phraseology that is found and used in other contexts that could have been used in this instance, um, including the specific word adore, uh, to, um, to actually indicate that these were long ages instead of days. Um, he also writes that he could have used, uh, this is God, could have used a neighboring language word for time, such as the Aramaic words, Zeman or Eden. And I'm sorry if I don't have these um, pronunciations cor correct, but um, instead, God chose to use the only Hebrew word, Yom, that means a literal 24-hour day. Now, God is not the God of confusion. Let's remember that here. And that might be a little cliche to say, but I believe it's important. We need to understand that if God is able to clearly communicate what he intends to communicate with mankind, if he's God, he could certainly do that. And in this case, he seems to have been very, very clear and did not give uh, any ambiguity at all. And so that is why we dogmatically hold to a six-day creation if we're interested in the Bible's authority on the matter. So the next place that the author brings us here is to the order in which God created. And personally, I find this to be a pretty compelling um, line of argumentation. Um, because again, I, I do interface with those who tend to accept a more day age or either a progressive view, specifically the progressive view of creation. And it appears to me that you have to do more than just uh, make longer days out of Genesis. You also have to be able to switch the order around um, in order to accommodate the mainstream scientific conclusion about the long ages. So there's more to the story than just multiple days. Um, and for instance, we'll try to go through this quick, but uh, here are a few, uh, a few things. So the Bible says that the earth was created before light. 
and before the sun and stars. But that's just the opposite of the Big Bang uh, uh, theory. Of course, Big Bang theory would teach that the sun and the stars came first. Uh, the Bible says that fruit trees were created before any sea creatures and that birds were created before dinosaurs, which were made on day six, since they are land animals. Uh, exactly the opposite of the evolutionary story. Evolution says that initially the earth was a hot molten ball that cooled to develop a hard crust and then evolved in an atmosphere that produced rain. And then, with the help of melted asteroids, produced oceans. But Genesis says that the earth was completely covered with water for two days, and then dry land appeared. According to evolution, the earth has never been covered with a global ocean. But according to the Bible, the earth has been completely covered with water twice, the first two days of creation and Noah's flood. Also, um, if the days are figurative of long ages, then so are the evenings and mornings, if we're being consistent, right? But how could plants survive millions of years of darkness? Or how could they reproduce if they had to wait hundreds of millions of years before insects and animals were created that would pollinate the plants? Now, regarding the solar element of that, I'm fully aware of the uh, rebuttal, and um, we could be actually referencing one of those here in just a um, a moment. I'm looking at my notes here a little bit ahead to see. No, I don't think that's there. Um, one of the uh, objections that is commonly brought up is about light before the sun. And uh, I'm not going to take a long time to talk about that here because I don't have it. But if you go to my blog, steveshram.com, on the right sidebar, there is a, a, a post. Uh, if you scroll down just a little ways uh, on my top uh, posts and it addresses this issue. Um, I can't remember the exact name of the article. I'll link it in the in the show notes for you. Um, but it is uh, dealing with the issue of sunlight before, um, or not sunlight, but light, light in general. Okay, uh, before day four, um, which I believe there is absolutely no problem with at all. But see, in order for this reversed order of creation to work, other creation accounts have to have the sun, have to have the sun on day one. But that's not what the Bible says. Now they try to make it say that, but that's not what the Bible actually says. And so there we run into a problem. Um, So how did God create? All right, so the order in which God created, we, we dealt with that. That was very important because you see and you saw, hopefully, that that order is complete, completely backwards from what the mainstream evolutionary um, accepted idea is. And so if that's the case, then we do have a much bigger problem than just long days. All right, now let's go to another issue. How did God create? How did he create? Well, he created the first animate and inanimate things supernaturally and virtually instantly. For example, plants, animals, and people were created as mature adult forms, not as seeds or fertilized eggs or infants. Um, So this is significant because we didn't have to wait for long periods of time for things to grow. Uh, The Bible says that such and such happened, and then the comment it makes afterward in many cases is, and it was so. So God spoke, and nature, as it were, responded. All right, now, um, all subsequent uh, plants, animals, and people would be after their kind, after their kind. And this word kind um, is important, and it's a bit ambiguous, um, I think, on purpose. Um, we obviously did not know, we did not have, have, have the knowledge we have today, back then, of uh, speciation and things of that nature, of course. Um, this is very recent developments that, that we know about these phenomenon. And so um, I don't know of a way, I mean, the Bible was not very... How how do I want to say it specific um, about what a kind would be? I mean, it does say that everything bring forth after it kind, so after its kind. So that's a good measure. Um, however, we also know that sometimes um, an animal will uh, the populations will. I'm going to use the word evolve. I trust you know what I mean by that. Will 
evolve into uh, maybe a little different population. Now it might, let's take a rabbit. Now it might still be a rabbit, but they might not be able because of the variation and the gene alteration um, in the evolution process. All right. And I'm using those words in a way, I hope you understand what I mean by that. I don't mean in in a long Darwinian sense. Um, I mean, in the observable change that we can see, okay. Um, They might lose the ability to interbreed. Now, does that mean that it violates the biblical kind? Well, I don't know. There are um, barominologists um, created kind is the word baromen, okay? So there are barominologists who are working on this um, and these sorts of things. But here's the thing. I don't, it, it doesn't violate the kind, at least certainly not at face value, because we're still talking about a rabbit. We had a rabbit. We had another rabbit. We now... And they could they could reproduce. Okay, well now, uh, due to speciation and variation, we now have two rabbits who cannot uh, reproduce, but they're still rabbits. And there's no evidence that they're not going to one day be rabbits. All right, so that is um, important. So all subsequent plants, animals, and people would therefore now be after their kind. All right, uh, first individuals are created. The next ones are reproducing after their kind. Now, when God said, let there be, he did not have to wait millions of years for things to come into existence. He spoke and creatures came into existence immediately. We talked about that as Psalm 33, 6 through 9 emphasizes. All right, so we're not alone on that. So here are some questions, some rhetorical questions uh, to understand. Why would God create the earth? And leave it covered with water for millions of years when he says he created it to be inhabited. Isaiah 45, 18. Okay. Why would he why would he do that? All right. Why would God create plants and then let millions of years before creating animals and people who would eat plants for food? There's another thought for you. Thirdly, why would he create sea creatures and birds? And wait millions of years before creating land, animals, and people. And these questions become especially uh, significant when you start to factor in the dominion mandate. We were told to subdue the earth and study the earth. And, um, you know, honestly, I can't see any reason. I mean, I know these why questions are are always interesting, and I'm not... um, naive on that, okay? I understand we can't just just always answer why, but you can at least, by looking at the Bible, kind of glean a sense of God's purpose, and then ask some of these questions and, and see if they really make sense. And, you know, looking at God's nature, looking at God's stated purpose in His revelation to us, um, these questions seem absurd. There doesn't appear to be a good answer. The likely reason is because that's not the way it happened. He didn't leave it covered for millions of years. He didn't create sea creatures and birds millions of years ago. He didn't create plants millions of years ago. We are all here very recently in the grand context of things. All right. Um, here are some objections real quick to the literal days. Well, 24 hours would be insufficient to accomplish all the events attributed to the sixth day. I've covered this in a previous podcast. Um, No. (laughs) How small, how small does your view have to be of God? Yeah, there is a lot of stuff that goes on on the sixth day. No joke. Um, I'm not ignorant of that, but we're talking about God here. I mean, one of the um, objections is to Adam's naming of the animals. But remember, he's not naming all the species that we know of today. He's only naming kinds, the kind of animal, a certain few kinds. And we don't know exactly how many that was back then. Again, we're working on that. But I mean, it, it might have only been 5,000 animals. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I don't know. But one thing's for sure, he did not have to name the amount of animals that um, many think of whenever they're using that objection. All right, so 24 hours would be plenty of time for the day six events to happen. Genesis 2-4 uses yom in a non-literal sense, showing that the days of Genesis 1 were not literal. Well, this might be true, okay, that it does use it in a non-literal sense, but it does not magically remove the Genesis 1 context of evening, of evening, of, excuse me, of evening, the morning, a number, and in some cases even a definite article. 
All right. It, it doesn't uh, it doesn't remove that sense of it at all. It just means it's being used in a different context. I have seen some argue that um, that it's not being used in a non-literal sense that it is, but it's only referring to the first day. Um I tend to have no problem admitting that Genesis 2-4 um, uses the word day in the sense of a long, of a long age, um, or not of a long age, excuse me, but, but of a period of time, all right? So in the day that God created. I mean, I'm okay with that. Um, that's how confident I am in the Genesis 1 days. I don't think the Genesis 2-4 day has to mean a literal 24-hour day there. I think it can perfectly mean one of its other uses, while accepting the literal days of Genesis 1. No problem. All right, the seventh day does not conclude with the refrain of the other days, implying that it was not literal. Um, uh, Hebrews 4, oh, I forget the I forget the verse. Um, I'll look it up and put it in the show notes. Um, Hebrews 4 easily debunks this, and actually I'm, I'm, I'll put a link out there to a blog post that I did recently as well that also deals um, with this. The seventh day concludes. The seventh day was a definite literal day, of rest. No doubt about it. Days one through three cannot be literal if the sun was not created until day four. So there's our objection that we did mention earlier, and I've already given you some resources for that. Um, and Hebrews one, uh, Hebrews 4, 1 through 11, and there's our answer for the other one, uh, says that the seventh day continues and therefore is at least 6,000 years long. Um, that's not true. Those verses, Hebrews 4, 1 through 11, actually debunk that very objection that arises out of those verses, um, if you just look at them carefully. And so I'll, I'll give you a links to some resources to work through that. The author writes, uh, concluding, and I agree, all of these and other objections have been refuted for years in creationist literature, but I conclude from their published writings that old earth advocates seem to pay little or no attention to creationist literature. And so they keep raising the same objections without responding to young earth refutations. And if I'm being honest, um, that's the heart of the problem. The heart of the problem in this debate is I can um, point you to numerous places where where the young earth um, researchers are critiquing the old earth um, or I, you know, I use the term broadly, but but I, I'm I'm gathering in everybody in that the progressive creationist, the theistic evolutionist, just anybody who doesn't agree with that position on scripture. Um, I have seen I've seen us go into their work in detail and, and work hard to refute it, but I don't see the the the, the fence. Uh, I don't see them coming over the other side of the fence, uh, so to speak. Okay, I, I don't see it happening, um, and. If it happens anywhere, it's just on a casual blog post. There's no actual um, engagement with the scientific literature, all right, that um, that young earth creationists are putting out. And that's the heart of the problem, um, I think. I think that if people better understood the young earth position, there would be um, no problem accepting it and accepting Genesis as history. All right, uh, let's move on. God's commentary on Genesis 1, Exodus 28 through 11. All right, now there are multiple lines of evidence here. Um, uh, for instance, it rules out the day-age view and the day-gap, day-gap, day view, um, because it says, for in six days, God made everything. And he used the plural yamim just as if he, or excuse me, just as he did in the first part of the commandment. Um, which, by the way, this is dealing with the um, with Exodus twenty eight through eleven, which is in the Ten Commandments, and it's tying the creation week to the Jewish work week. Okay, so I encourage you to read that verse um, and kind of get a sense of what's going on there. And they also rule out the gap theory or any attempt to add millions of years before Genesis one one, because God says He created the heavens, the earth the sea, and all of them in, all that in them is during the six days described in Genesis 1. And also it proves that the first day of creation begins in Genesis 1-1, um, when the earth was created, not 1-3, when God made light. All right, now um, let's move on and look real quick at Exodus 20 verse 12. Exodus 20, 12 does not show that the days in 28 through 11 are not literal, as Grudem contends that they do, because the verse does not use the singular yam, day, as Grudem's statement implies, but rather the plural yamim, days, all right, days, and the non-literal word in the verse is prolonged, not days, all right, so we have to be very, very careful that we're getting the right 
um, uh, interpretation of the word, all right? And that word yamim, yamim is always used, and I'm probably not saying it right, but yamim, yamim, I'm not sure exactly how you'd say that, um, but it is never used in the sense of anything other than a literal day. All right, Collins and Lennox assert that Exodus 20.11 teaches the difference between man's work and rest and God's work and rest, i.e. that man's work and rest are like but not identical to God's creation work and rest. But we have to remember here that the fourth commandment is not contrasting the work of man and the work of God at all. That's not what's in view here. Rather, it is equating the human week with God's creation week. So it's it's a different. Uh, they're they're refuting something that doesn't exist. It, it's a connection that doesn't exist. Okay, it's it's a different connection. Um, some other biblical evidence. Um, let's just run through some of these real quick in the interest of time. Uh, the purpose of the heavenly bodies. You know, God tells us why He created the sun and the stars, um, uh, so man could tell time. So it's ridiculous if the evolutionary story of thirteen point eight billion years is true, um, because they would have existed for millions of years before accomplishing their purpose, which doesn't seem to make sense. Um, of course, Adam and Eve were to rule over the animals, but if millions of years of history happened before Adam and Eve, most of the creatures that ever lived also died. Many um, became extinct before Adam and Eve could ever rule over them. Um, that doesn't seem to make any sense. Jesus and the biblical uh, authors, um, uh, we have uh, dealt with this ad nauseum over the last couple episodes, um, but he summarizes that if the evolutionary view is true, um, then Jesus, Paul, and Isaiah were badly mistaken and cannot be uh, trusted in other things that they teach. And unfortunately, this is not far-fetched, as we dealt with a couple weeks ago, Um or last week, I can't remember which, uh, a theistic evolutionist recently blatantly admitted this, and I, I told you about it. It was troubling to me. Um, I think Jesus, Paul, and Isaiah can be trusted. Uh, no death before the fall. Um, you know, there's issues uh, with, with this. Um, radiometric dating, of course, was not invented until the early 20th century. Um, and this is almost 100 years. Now, remember, this is a history of a historian of geology who is writing this. And so, I, you know, give us the benefit of the doubt here, all right? I believe that he's reporting some accurate information when he says that almost 100 years after millions of years was locked into the minds of most geologists and other scientists. Um remember the first person to really really start popularizing this idea was um lyle all right lyle um i remember i think yeah i can't remember his first name but it was uh it was lyle um so maybe it was charles might have been charles lyle i think that's what it was um and then of course darwin was not far after that um actually lyle very much so influenced darwin all right, so um, in the fossil record, of course, we find evidence of carnivores eating other animals. Cancer, we also find arthritis and brain tumors in dinosaurs. Diseases and cannibalism in supposedly pre-human hominids. Thorns and thistles. And at least five mass extinction events when anywhere from 60 to 90% of the species living at the time went extinct due to some kind of natural evil, such as the supposed asteroid that wiped out the dinosaurs and most other life, quote, 65 million years ago. So these are some issues with death before the fall. Of course, if we had a perfect creation before the fall, um, we understand that the uh, there must be another reason for what the ge uh, geologists interpret um, as these supposed long ages, right? It, it's it's not it, it's not some kind of um, secret that we have uh, fossils in the ground. Um, it's it's not some kind of conspiracy either. Something must explain it. The geologists in days gone by have said long ages, all right? And creation scientists are saying, no, look, the Bible records a worldwide flood, and this is what we would expect if such a thing occurred. More on that another time, uh, but remember that this is not an issue for young earth creationists. It's only an issue if we start to violate the Bible's order of things. Now, even C Christopher Hitchens, now I understand you have to take an atheist and a new atheist at that, um, typically with a grain of salt here, but, but you know, I just find it interesting. I'm just going to submit this. That Here's what he said about this view. Let's say that the consensus is that our species, being the higher primates, Homo sapiens, has been on the planet for at least 100,000 years. 
maybe more. In order to be a Christian, you have to believe that for 98,000 years, our species suffered and died, most of its children dying in childbirth, most other having a life expectancy of about 25 years, famine, struggle, bitterness, war, suffering, misery, and all of that for 98,000 years. Heaven watches this with complete indifference, and then 2,000 years ago thinks, that's enough of that, it's time to intervene. And the best way to do this would be by condemning someone to a human sacrifice somewhere in the less literate parts of the Middle East. That is nonsense. It can't be believed by a thinking person. Now look, I'm not on the same side as Christopher Hitchens here, okay? I understand that I believe what he's speaking is nonsense. Uh, But the point is that he's got a point. Um, You know, concerning his characterization, of, of what it's like to be a consistent, okay, to be a consistent Christian um, amid the evolutionary ideas and also accept the long ages. There is a contradiction in terms there, all right? There's just contradictions there um, in the story of humanity, all right? So and that's what Christopher Hitchens is highlighting in there. Um, and, of course, Dr. Mortensen concludes off of that that for all these reasons, the only biblically possible view is that Adam and Eve were created on the sixth, literal, normal, 24-hour day after the beginning of time. So now we turn to the time between Adam and us. Um, so here is, uh, I'm just going to give you a brief summary of his writing from Adam to us today, all right? And this is, uh, it's going to be a little long, um, but it's going to be briefer than going through all of his lines of evidence. So here's what he says. Genesis sure looks like God wanted to convey a chronology. He gives the age of, the, of each patriarch when he dies, and the next man in the genealogy was born, when instead he could have just listed names, as he did in 1 Chronicles 1-27, through Matthew 1, 1-16, and Luke 3, 23-38. He also numbers the days of creation week, gives time markers for events during the flood, tells us how old Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were at key events in their lives, and tells the Jews to pay attention to the calendar for religious festivals. He tells us how long the Israelites were in Egypt, how long they wandered in the wilderness, and how long it was from the Exodus to the building of Solomon's temple. He gives us chronological information about the reigns of the pre-kingdom judges and the kings of Israel and Judah and some neighboring kingdoms. He tells us how long the Babylonian captivity would last and gives us plenty of chronological information in the Gospels and Acts to follow the ministry of Jesus and the apostles. God has given a history in Scripture, and he evidently wants us to know when things happened. Now, that's a powerful powerful paragraph to me. It's, it just shows the significance and the importance that the Bible plates on, places on historical data. I just want you to reflect on that for a moment. This is real history. The Bible painstakingly records it. I read just recently in another book, which we're going to do a series on, I guarantee you. I guarantee you. But I, I read just recently in this other book um, that... Nowhere else in the Bible or in ancient Near East geologies do you ever, ever find the sort of data that is given to us in Genesis 5 and 11. As far as the dates, the date and the age of the father when the son was born and things like that, uh, which we're getting ready to get into next here. Um, But let me tell you, that is a powerful, powerful line of argumentation. It's so unique. The Bible is a unique piece of literature. Let's look real quick at a few arguments for some gapless genealogies. No missing years in Genesis 5 and 11. All right? Um, They are the only genealogies, and this, you know, um, kind of summarizes this here. They are the only genealogies in the Bible and ancient Near East literature where we are given the age of each father when the son was born and how many years the father lived after that birth. So this is very significant. We know now that the Matthew 1 genealogy is incomplete because the Old Testament fills in the gaps. All right, this is line number two. All right, but Genesis 5 and 11 have no such texts. They're complete for all intents and purposes. 
Baptist Hebraeus number three, John Gill, concluded that, uh, quote, the extra Canaan in Luke 3.36 is almost certainly due to scribal error in copying manuscripts, for that Canaan is not in the oldest manuscripts of Luke and the Septuagint. Now, I don't have an opinion on this. Um, I haven't looked into it any further, so I'm just kind of... Um, blindly giving you Dr. Mortens' assessment of that. I have not looked into it any further, um, but I, I, I trust that, that they've got that worked out. Um, I guess what I'm trying to say is, even if that's not worked out, all the other evidence is so good um, that if this one thing was a problem, I'm okay with it being a problem until we figure it out. All right. Um, so there's an extra Canaan in Luke 3.36, but uh, the Baptist Hebraist John Gill uh, concluded that it was most certainly due to scribal error. And I have seen some other arguments on that, but I don't want to get into that right now. All right, number four. Another evidence that Matthew has omitted some names is that if his list was incomplete, the average generation time between David and Jesus would be 35 years, which just seems too long. But Luke's genealogy from Jesus all the way to Adam has 41 generations between David and Jesus with a very reasonable average of 24 years for each. Luke also expressly states that in writing his gospel, he investigated everything carefully to present the exact truth concerning Jesus, which is found, of course, in Luke 1, 3-4, giving us reason to think that Luke was giving us a complete genealogy from Jesus back to Adam. Now, you'll remember... William Henry Green's article, which we mentioned earlier. Now, it argues that the word yoled, Y-O-L-E-D, rendered beget, does not always mean a parent-child relationship. All right. However, Tanner notes that yoled is used 170 times in Genesis, and in all other cases outside of chapters 5 and 11, the context makes clear that a literal parent-child relationship is in view. So while it can mean that it's not a parent-child relationship, uh, the context in all of the other cases in Genesis um, most certainly make clear that that is the kind of relationship. So uh, context would help us to, to indicate that that is the kind of relationship meaning to be conveyed. Additionally, because of non-chronological details, given about six of these relationships, we know they are literal father-son links. But since uh, in both chapters it says that each of these six patriarchs had many other sons and daughters, which surely is referring to immediate family members, this is strong evidence that all the links in Genesis 5 and 11 are literally father-son. More importantly, uh, number six, as Sexton demonstrates, Green erred in assuming without explicit argument that genealogical gaps necessarily imply chronological gaps. Now, this is important. In other words, even if names or generations are missing. That does not mean that there must be missing time too. It does not matter, for example, if Kenan was the son or grandson or great-grandson, etc. of Enosh. In any case, Kenan was born when Enosh was 90 years old. So again, while theoretically the Hebrew verb Yoled could allow for missing names, there's no basis for imagining missing years. Genesis 5 and 11 provide us with a strict chronology from Abraham back to Adam and thereby back to the very beginning of creation. Number seven, furthermore, if Genesis 5 and 11 are open genealogies with gaps, we cannot add enough years to harmonize Genesis with the evolutionary timescale for Homo sapiens without making the genealogies absurd. Now, that's an important point, too. I mean, even if we did go in there and extend those genealogies, I mean, the, about the most we're going to get is somewhere just under 10,000 years using any degree of reasonable um, generation times when we go back to insert in the gaps. We're not getting anywhere close to 100,000 years. There's just not enough time in, in the biblical scale for that to have happened. There's just not enough time. And then, A, we're not going to go into all this because we don't have time. He spends pages on this. But the author goes on to give a careful refutation of claims made by Rana and Ross in their book, Who Was Adam? Um, and again, their counter-arguments are quite thorough and quite compelling. I, I, just, I just don't have time to go through them all here, so I encourage you again to grab uh, the book. Uh, we're almost done uh, for today. I just want to give you uh, a couple final thoughts in closing here. Uh, so uh, he asked a couple rhetorical questions. Um, what about all the human bones and living people? 
Well, the author asks, where are all the fossilized and unfossilized bones if mankind is 50,000 or 100,000 or even more years old? The earth should be overflowing with skeletal remains and human artifacts, but we find very little. And why isn't the human population today much larger? And written records and other evidences of civilization much older than about six to 10,000 years by the secular dating of civilizations, if Homo sapiens came into existence 100,000 to 400,000 years ago. From the eight people coming off the ark about 4,500 years ago, the present world's population can easily be explained. But if mankind is as old as the evolutionists claim, the world's population for today is far, far too small. Reality confirms the Bible, not evolutionary dates. And I'll say amen uh, to that. All right, what about the scientific dating methods? Um, of course, we have dealt with these uh, as we have dealt with the claims of Jesus. We've dealt with these dating methods um, ad nauseum over the past um, a few weeks. So, um, well, maybe not the past few weeks, but but over the life of this podcast, we've talked about those dating methods quite a bit. I would point you to uh, two episodes. The very first episode we did... Um, deals with this, and then we had a lesson a few weeks ago, which I will put in the show notes, uh, and it also dealt with observational failures in the dating methods, and so um, we have discussed those at length, but the, the in short, they're all based on assumptions, and assumptions that are um, unprovable, all right, and so if, if we're allowed to start with an unprovable assumption, then I say we're allowed to start with the Bible, and if we start with the Bible as an assumption, then we can build a scientific understanding of our world based on the Bible, and it completely makes sense, all right? So no problems there at all. So in conclusion, um, let's uh, look at a couple statements from the author. He writes, It is simply impossible to apply sound hermeneutical principles to the biblical text and harmonize Genesis 1-11 through with the evolutionary claims about the antiquity of man or the earth and universe. It is exegetically impossible to put more than six days between Adam and the first moment of creation. Even if names are missing in Genesis 5 and 11, I think this is highly unlikely, there are no missing years because the age of the patriarch is given when the next man is born. William H. Green, like Charles Hodge, A.A. Hodge, B.B. Warfield, and likely the rest of the faculty at Princeton at the time, were wrong about the age of the earth, and man unintentionally misled many others. Hmm. Sad. It's very sad. He asks, but does it matter? Yes, it matters because God has given us many chronological details in his inerrant word. He could have easily, easily inspired Moses and the other biblical writers to speak in vague terms of thousands of years or long ago. The details matter because every word of God matters. It also matters because Jesus and the apostles all clearly took Genesis as literal history. There's no reason to suppose that they ought, or excuse me, that they thought any differently about the genealogies of Genesis 5 and 11. If their word cannot be trusted on this matter, then their truthfulness and authority are undermined on all other matters. Maybe not ruled out, but undermined most certainly. He closes with this. So the only real reason, or the only real question, excuse me, regarding the dating of Adam's creation is whether or not we will believe God's word. Or... Will we instead make secular archaeology, paleontology, geology, and astronomy and their dating methods as well as ancient pagan, uh, pagan chronologies our final authority on this matter? Put more simply, whose word do we supremely trust? God's or man's? A lot of evidence here for a recent creation, for a recent Adam. One of the most difficult things by their own admission for proponents of an old earth view to do is to place Adam in our history in a place that makes sense. This is much more consistently seen um, in the young earth uh, interpretation. And when you line up all the evidence, the genealogical data, the uh, order of creation, the evidence for the context of a literal day, uh, the fact that Jesus and the apostles saw Genesis as recent literal history, um, to me it's just a, a supreme testament to the historical veracity 
of the Bible. It's not only theologically accurate, it's not only scientifically accurate, but it is a historical document, and it includes a strict chronology for us to understand and a strict history of the world from its very beginning. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I love you and I thank you for this opportunity to come to you, uh, to come and worship you and to um, come into the ears and to the minds of, of many again this week. Father, it's a blessing that we get to serve you in this way. I pray now that you would bless these efforts. I pray now that we would see souls saved as a result of them. We would see hearts changed. We would see people begin to see the truth of your word and of your gospel, Lord. We sure love you. We thank you for everything that you're doing for us in the new year. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us this week on the Creation Academy. Hope you had a great week. Uh, if you're interested in more episodes or um, uh, any of our blog material or anything, just go over to my website, uh, www.steveshram.com, and you can get a look at what we're doing over there. We post a blog post every Tuesday, um, something related to the field of apologetics, and then, of course, this podcast on creation science every Thursday. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for supporting us. Uh, sign up for our email list over there so you can be notified when these things come out and when things are going on. And um, we love you. God bless you. And we'll see you next week right here on the Creation Academy. Thank you. Bye-bye.